The following podcast is for informational purposes only, and the opinions expressed therein are not necessarily those of Canal Insurance Company. This information is not designed to replace, substitute, or supplement our client's independent obligation to comply with any laws or regulations. Listeners should complete their own independent research in creation and development of their company's risk management and safety programs. Welcome to episode 25 of the Hollow Notes podcast by Canal Insurance. I'm Jennifer Eubanks, Claims Legal Director at Canal, and your guest host for today's episode. This month's guest is Juan Fuentes, founder and managing partner of the Fuentes firm. Juan is the founder of the firm, and he dedicates his practice to the representation of motor carriers. He has practiced civil litigation in Texas since 1999 and is admitted to practice in all state and federal jurisdictions in Texas. His litigation experience includes achievement of defense verdicts against plaintiffs and personal injury claims, favorable decisions from Texas courts of appeal, upholding trial court decisions in his client's favor, and legal representation of motor carrier interests before the Texas Supreme Court. Additionally, Mr. Fuentes acts as corporate counsel for motor carriers in matters relating to safety, commercial driver contracts, shipping contracts, brokerage agreements, employment matters, and cargo claims. Mr. Fuentes, who is bilingual in Spanish, is a graduate of the University of Texas, where he received a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy in 1996. After graduating from UT, he studied law in the University of Houston Law Center and earned his Juris Doctor degree in December of 1998. He is licensed by the Supreme Court of Texas since May of 99. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Now let's get rolling. Juan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, apart from what I've already given, sort of the, the overview, and your firm? Um, sure. <clears throat> so, yeah, our firm, we're dedicated to representing trucking companies. I got into this niche around 2007 and uh, fell in love. Um, you know, trucking just just grabs you in a different way. It's, it's a wonderful market. And in particular, as an attorney, I feel like the challenges we face in defending trucking companies um really motivate us and 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 push us uh to constantly get better because the deck the deck is stacked against trucking companies and you know we've been working hard to level the playing field so uh, you know juan we we obviously partner with you in the texas area um i think you have now grown to what 18 lawyers 18 lawyers and we're about to have our 50th employee. January is our 10 year anniversary. So very exciting that we've gone from three employees to um, almost 50 now. And your locations now, I think you just added a Dallas office, correct? Right, we have attorneys in Houston, San Antonio, Austin and Dallas. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, You were speaking of the challenges of the trucking industry and today's topic is that of nuclear verdicts. Uh, which is certainly a challenge. Now, the term nuclear verdict, I understand, has been trademarked by a California law firm. So we're going to use the term explosive verdicts or excessive verdicts or just plain wacko crazy insane verdicts, um, which I think we can all agree with. Um, We have been talking about these crazy jury verdicts in the trucking industry for at least seven or eight years. 
but they seem to be increasing in frequency. Uh, they used to be like once in a blue moon, outsized verdict before 2015. They are now more consistent and they are now more commonplace. What defines an excessive verdict to you? I'd probably just use the term surprise verdict. You know, I've heard that oftentimes um, from, from claims professionals. The one thing that claims professionals don't like is surprises. If it's a million dollar case, you'll write the million dollar check. But you don't want to show up thinking it's a $50,000 case and now it's a million dollar case. Um, that, that term previously was defined as a $10 million verdict. That, that's arbitrary. I mean, you have some cases where if the medical bill, you know, quadriplegic or, you know, multiple fatality, 10 million, you know, there's some circumstances where that, that may be the, the fair number. Um, but in large part to me, it's just a surprise verdict where the result greatly exceeds what was expected for the claim. And, and I think that there's, there's two types of surprises. There's, there's the surprise in that you knew the claim was worth something, but the damages that the jury award don't match up with the damages that you, you see that were presented, the evidence. And then there is the surprise verdict where you have great defense and the jury just ignores it. Um, and I think we've seen both of those in the industry. So to give our audience an example of an, an explosive or a surprise verdict, as you put it, which I think is a great term, um, could you briefly describe the facts and the outcome of the Werner trucking case that was tried in Texas in 2018? I, I think a bunch of us are familiar with it, but some in the audience may not be. Sure, um, and that one, definitely an outlier. It had, had a lot of really um, difficult variables. Uh, but basically, the fact pattern of what happened was this was a cold and um, uh, it, it was a day where there was an ice storm. There was ice out on the roads. Um, this is an Abilene. Basically, imagine, um, you know, uh, northern Texas heading out west towards California. It was a um, uh, an expedited load that had to be in California by the next day. And there were advisories out. There was ice on the road. So be careful. Stay off the roads if necessary. That's a backdrop. And then what actually happens is you've got um, two lanes going in each direction and there's a median separating the traffic. Well, on the, the other side there, um, you know, the traffic that's coming in the opposite direction that's going east, uh, a pickup truck loses control, spins out, goes across the median and comes in front of the Werner truck who's driving 10 miles an hour below the speed limit in his own lane. And there's nothing the Warner truck could have done. I mean, this truck comes head on. Uh, the Warner truck slows down, comes to a stop, but but a, a terrible tragedy happens as a result of the accident. One person died. A young uh, girl became a, a paraplegic. Um, another person was injured. Um, but I mean, I just I don't see that, that truck could have done anything differently. And what happened in this case was a lot of evidence came in, a lot of theories came in that are basically up on appeal now um, because they, it appears they shouldn't have come in. The, the judge allowed extensive discovery into Werner's prior accident history, their prior fatalities, and the jury heard about that. Um, and you know, Werner is a big company. They drive millions and millions of miles. And um, and so um, so so bringing that in out of context and, and having to to basically relitigate other incidents that were unrelated 
that was very problematic. That that was upsetting to the jury. Um, you've got a young girl who's a paraplegic. And then the facts that they brought out were essentially the truck shouldn't have been on the road that day and, and it wouldn't happen, which which is really um, unfair because the truck did not actually cause the accident. So they brought in facts such as, I, I believe they said Werner had a 400% turnover. They've got you know um, a, a big volume of new drivers that are in training. This driver was in training and his trainer was asleep um, in the back. Um, it, you know, and, and of course he used an expedited load to suggest that the company didn't care that it was cold and dangerous. They were just trying to get profits. So they used all of that to create a picture of a company that's using untrained drivers that are unsafe, taking chances out there, and people are dying. And, and that, that really affected the outcome of that case. And the jury rendered a $90 million verdict. And they found that Werner and his driver were majority at fault, which meant that they're 100% liable for the verdict. It's called joint and several liability in Texas when you're more than 50% you were joint and severally liable. So they essentially are on the hook for the entire 90 million, except for, I believe the, the guy who actually caused the accident by spinning out, I believe they had 500 and some thousand in insurance. So that's the only credit they got, but essentially uh, when you factor in prejudgment interest, et cetera, um, that, that's really, um, it, it, that was definitely a, uh, a surprise verdict. Now, I know that case went up on appeal. Do you, do you know what the status of the appeal is right now? Mm, well, so it went up on appeal. And the way the appellate court works is um, there, there's, there's nine justices total, but then they get broken into panels of three that will decide any particular case and only in special uh, occasions. And I'm sorry, appellate law is, is not uh, what I do on a daily basis. So, uh, but this is the gist of it, that there'll be a panel of three. There's only certain situations where the entire panel comes together. Anyhow, panel of three, which included um, a mixture of, of there was Republicans and Democrats on there. And I don't mean to go political, but there tends to be just as in with the national landscape. Democrats tend to favor certain issues. Republicans tend to favor certain issues. We kind of see that uh, in the trial court level. So there was a mix. They had a decision ready to come out. But then the, the powers that be there said they were going to pull that. And, and the entire panel got together to basically prevent that opinion decision from coming out. And that's the last I've heard of is a while back. Um, and uh, I think it's still just stuck there. So, uh, and in that there was a, a scathing opinion written from one of the justices that they've never seen anything like this before. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. So I, I think I read somewhere that possibly when they pulled the initial panel's decision, that there was supposed to be an en banc hearing with a hearing of all the justices of the court, not just the three in the panel. Um, yeah. But, but it sort of stuck there, huh? That's, that's the last I've heard of it. I, and I haven't heard of any developments since then. That was, um, I guess about a, within the last year, about a year or so ago that that okay. happened. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the factors that are driving explosive verdicts or surprise verdicts. How did these surprise verdicts become commonplace? There are a, a few factors that are coming together. And I'll start with, um, obviously this is a lot of persuasion. It's a lot of psychology that's going on. 
Um, and so, so one of the things that is going on, I, I'll kind of address these generally and we can drill down a little bit further. Um, but one of the things that's going on is, of course, we've all heard of reptile theory, which is a tactic to have the jury see the defendant as a danger to the community and to basically have the jury motivated to send a message to the jury, uh, uh, or, I'm sorry, to the defendant through their verdict. So, um, and, and we'll, we'll go more in depth into that. I, I think it's very fascinating um, how, how that plays out. Then you have another big tool now. We've heard a lot about reptile theory. Um, we probably need to talk more about anchoring. So plaintiff attorneys are anchoring with extremely high numbers now. Um, and, and we'll talk about that some more. A third factor is the, um, is anger. So if you look at these cases, most of the time the defendant is denying liability and the jurors are placing such a high burden and responsibility on, um, um, on, on companies that it, um, where defendant might see that they're not responsible, the jury is seeing that they could have done more. And so the defendant saying they're not responsible and the jury seeing a picture painted that they need to make improvements, it, it, an anger element um, starts to start to come out there. And, and so you've got the, the reptile theory, juror anger, you've got anchoring, and then you have a social climate, the backdrop of a social climate now with a lot of activism going on. You see, you see people really, I mean, you, you saw the Me Too movement, you've seen the Occupy Wall Street movement, um, we saw the, uh, the George Floyd protests, um, the climate change um, concerns. So we have a society that's very mobilized, perhaps because social media allows people to, to you know, to share more information. And, and so kind of tying it all back together again, now going back to us talking about what's interesting about reptile theory. So, um, so jurors want to make a difference. So just as much as people want to go vote to make a difference, the jurors sit in the box. They feel like they can make a difference by sending a message to that company that they need to be safer and, and change their approach to things. So, so bottom line, you've got reptile theory. You've got um, uh, you know, a, a jury pool that's wanting to enact social um, change. And then you've got these techniques going on with anchoring where they're throwing out these really big numbers and changing the reference point. Um, what effect, if any, do you think that trial lawyer advertising is having? I was watching TV last night and was uh, subjected to the um, call all twos and get your check now. Not get justice, not get what's due you, but get your check now. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, I, it, there's two ways that it affects things. One is there are a lot of cases that wouldn't have been a case. I mean, when I see that plaintiff didn't treat until three to seven days after the accident, I'm wondering, is that how much time it took for the plaintiff attorney to find the, the crash report, contact them, and then send them to their doctor? So I think we certainly, if you took it away, you would cut cases tremendously because a lot of people, frankly, they're okay. And, and that's why plaintiff attorneys refer their clients to pre-selected doctors that know the litigation game. Otherwise, you know, plaintiff attorneys don't say, okay, you're sore, go
go talk to your doctor and, and let me know how it turns out. And if you're still having problems, come back. They don't do that. They say, go see this doctor. And, and, and then the, the, you know, it, it runs through, through that process. So you've got that. Then you have these billboards and commercials that throw around $50 million. And even, you know, San Antonio, um, Thomas J. Henry has a billboard for a billion dollar verdict that he got. Um, what's interesting about that is the client went on the local news and she was upset because she sees that billboard and she hasn't collected a penny on that case. But, but jurors see these numbers or the public see these numbers out there being thrown around and you wonder back to the anchoring concept. If they see 10 million, 50 million, 20 million on these commercials, do they think that's what cases go for? Right. That's what's normal. Right. That's what's normal. Right. Um, and, and I desperately, desperately want um, the the state bar associations to force attorneys to, if they have a billboard that says, I want a billion dollars, they also have to list all the defeats because they've also lost cases. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. So can we talk a minute about um, punitive damages? A lot of the crazy verdicts I'm seeing consist of sort of insanely high numbers on non-economic damages, which for, for our audience, non-economic damages is pain and suffering and little to nothing for punitive damages, even though the plaintiff's attorneys are getting the jury sort of riled up and angry. Um, my theory is that enough states have enacted tort reform that caps on punitive damages or even in a state that doesn't have caps, the Supreme Court ruling in State Farm versus Campbell um, it requires limitations on punitive damages. So the trial lawyers are foregoing punitive damages, which are harder to get anyway, and pursuing inflated non-economic damages. What are you seeing with regard to punitive damages versus non-economic damages? Well, exactly that. Um, that that's what's been going on. So plaintiff attorneys will oftentimes um, put gross negligence. We see it in... in a very substantial percentage of our cases that gross negligence is alleged from the beginning. The reality is that that conduct that amounts to gross negligence is rare. I mean, by definition, the, the thought that somebody would purposely engage in um, in conduct that involves an extreme degree of danger, you know, I mean, that's just doesn't happen. Who who wants that? It's not a good business move to knowingly take risks um, of, of that magnitude. So it's really rare. But what they will do is they'll try to create a fact question to suggest that that there is um, a gross negligence claim and they'll put on the evidence at trial. You know, they'll use that as the excuse to talk about more bad liability facts, which plays right into angering the juror and making them feel the need to uh, make a statement. Um, and then they'll they'll even drop the gross negligence claim once they go to um, submit the jury charge at, at the end. So it is for that reason that when we were working on tort reform here in Texas before the last legislative session, I asked that we bifurcate the gross negligence liability finding because if because again, they they know they don't typically they don't have the facts to support a gross negligence claim to a gross negligence judgment, um, and they're just putting it out there for the reasons we discussed. So if we have a situation where we've stipulated a fault, and the only question is what's a fair amount of damages, but they also have this gross negligence claim to reopen all of the the liability facts, 
that needs to be in a separate trial because those facts have nothing to do with plaintiff's injuries, right? Whether the company had good uh, employment verification policies or hiring policies has nothing to do with whether or not the plaintiff has a medical bill, you know, it, it's different types of right. evidence. So, but when you put that liability evidence in there, it taints that pain and suffering award, you know, and, and it has that effect there. So it, it really prejudices the defendants in a, um, in a way where evidence that's not relevant to damages ends up affecting damages. So that's why I, I had asked that, that that be put in there and um, our folks, um, uh, lobbyists uh, at the Capitol did a great job. They, they put that provision in there um, and it, it all, it passed. So effective September 1 of 2021 for all new cases filed in Texas, you can move to bifurcate that gross negligence claim. And, and I believe what the outcome will be now is the pain and suffering will be what it fairly is, not based on some emotional or anger you know, towards the defendant. And then if there really is a gross negligence and that can be treated separately, but the fact is it's just going to fall off because those facts really aren't there. It was all just a tactic to, to, to taint uh, the compensatory damages award. So I think that those will go away. The other thing is um, there are caps on punitive damages. So if, if the compensatory damages are what they should be, then those caps play the role they're intended to perform. But when you have that inflating the core damage, the principal compensatory damages, well, then it, you know, they, they get, they get that a few times over. Right. Um, I don't know if Texas allows per diem pain and suffering damages. Are y'all allowed to make a, are the plaintiff's attorneys allowed to make a per diem argument? The, um, Generally, yes, and 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 as a defendant, we would object. Well, they can. I think it's within the discretion of the court. But as a defendant, um, I, I know we had that issue in a federal case uh, last year. But as a defendant, we object to that and ask for at, at either that it not be allowed or a limiting instruction. The limiting instruction being that the judge tells the the jury that that is not actually evidence. That's just an argument. And, and just for our audience, so they understand what, what the plaintiff attorneys will do is they will say, um, you know, this person is in excruciating pain. They're going to, they're, they're 42 years old. They're gonna live for another, however many thousands of days that is. So give them $10 a day. And then that number comes out to millions of dollars. That's what per diem is. Um, which, which is a lot, it's false premises. They're not in the same amount of pain every day for the rest of their life. And it, it, there's a lot of, uh, and, and it's very arbitrary as well to come up with any dollar amount. So, um, so we are at a minimum entitled to limiting instruction. And, and that way we can tell the jury, look, the judge told you that's not evidence. That's just something that he made up. Right. Um, I was talking with a South Carolina attorney uh, earlier this week and um, he was telling me about a recent surprise verdict um, where the plaintiff's attorney suggested that the jury should give the plaintiff a set amount of money not per day but per minute of the plaintiff's life um, and that really hurt them um, have you seen other creative arguments to inflate these non-economic pain and suffering damages I have. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. We've got a case that looks like it, it may end up being tried. And, and I saw our opposing counsel tried a case um, recently. So I got his closing argument and uh, and 
and he employed those tricks. So we're now into the anchoring uh, phase of uh, of this discussion, talking about this. So, so anchoring is a um, psychological term where basically you change the reference point. So when somebody talks about 10, 20, 30 million dollars, now people start thinking in terms of millions of dollars, you know, and so, uh, and it's a very powerful tool. We see it in sales all the time. You know, when something has a sales price, it seems like it's less expensive because they, they anchored it with that higher price. So, um, so here's an example of what this attorney um, did in a closing argument last year. Uh, so he explained that, um, you know, we see athletes out there making $15 million a year, or I would say, I mean, you've got Mike Trout making 40 million plus a year. Um, he says, we, we've got CEOs making $5 million a year. I saw recently a Van Gogh painting went for $90 million. Well, let me tell you about Rachel. Rachel, for her family, she's the MVP with all the things she does to keep her family together. She is the CEO of the family, and a picture of this family is, is like a Van Gogh. And so he just these things have nothing to do with her damages. But, you know, I'm sitting there thinking if my wife was on that jury panel and she hears this man talking about how important her role is and how about, you know, can't you see somebody just eating that up? Like, man, he gets it, right? He gets it. But really, they're changing that that anchor point. And that's that's really what they've learned. And that's what they're telling each other at their trial academies is just shoot for the moon, throw out these ridiculously high numbers because they're not getting punished for it. Jurors aren't coming back and saying, oh, how could that attorney have asked for $10 million? And, and I think part of them assumes that well, that's an attorney and he must believe that that must be there must be something to it. So so you've got a lot of that going. On. And then now let's bring back in the other variable we've been talking about. If the jury is mad at the defendant, their lawyer just came up and told them their client did nothing wrong. They never accepted responsibility. So we're not going to do anything they're asking us and we're going to give the plaintiff what they're asking for, whatever they're asking for, because I feel bad for that lady. Um, that's what the lawyer said. And the other side, they, they need to change their ways. That's basically how that's working. Yeah, we had a, um, a mock trial on a case that ended up getting tried in, um, in California. And the jurors went back it, and we mocked it with two different um, amounts anchoring the plaintiff's demand. We, we mocked it a couple of times. So the first time the, the plaintiff's attorney, the pseudo plaintiff's attorney asked for um, $5 million and the jury talked and they brought back, you know, 2.5 million. And the next time he asked for $20 million and they brought back 10. And one of the things they said in their deliberations, which of course we could, we could hear because it was a mock trial was, oh, well, the plaintiff's attorney, they know what these things are worth. They know what these things go for. They know what's normal, um, which is total hogwash, but that's well, what they believed. There you go. See, and we're, we're talking to two different states, two totally different cases, and that's exactly, we both found that from different jury pools. Yeah. So coming back to Texas a little bit, in the state you practice, and, and like California, actually, um, Texas enacted some tort reform to restrict the damages a plaintiff can collect from medical care to only those the insured or the plaintiff actually incurred. In other words, if the doctor charges 
$1,000 for a treatment, but the plaintiff's insurance company only pays 500, then, and the rest was written off, the plaintiff can only represent to a jury that he or she incurred 500 in damages, not 1,000. What has the plaintiff's bar in Texas done to avoid this rule and drive up the amounts it can ask for from a jury? That's a great question. So what they, so, and stated another way with the law, we call that the paid or incurred statute. And, and it basically says, if you go to the doctor's office and the doctor charges $350 for an office visit, but with your Blue Cross plan, he only gets paid $112 then all you can recover is $112. And of course, I'm using that number. We're, at, we're seeing three to 500,000 and more quite often in, in medical bills. So it, it's uh, of a much greater magnitude. For, or for example, the surgeon charges $25,000 for his fee for an operation, or that's his charge, but he actually gets paid $2,200. So, so that's the only amount they could put into evidence. So what plaintiff attorneys have been doing is they tell their clients, do not use your health insurance. It's that simple. And you just leave it at the inflated charge. And that started um, that. So the way the law evolved in Texas. So that statute came out around 2003. Um, and and after it came in, judges, for whatever reason, would still allow the full amount of the bills to come in evidence. And then they would adjust it after the jury verdict, which was not uh, Anyway, it just doesn't make sense. What if the jury wanted to cut medical in half? How are you doing that? It doesn't make sense. But um, so so they were still getting the big number in. And this goes back to the anchoring, right? When somebody wants pain and suffering, you're going to get more pain and suffering if your medical bills are 300000 than 30000 Back to the whole, right? It, it, everything is, is that magnitude. So as long as they got the big number into evidence, they were good with that. Well, around 2011, 2012, the Supreme Court um, came out and said, no, that does not come into evidence. The amounts that were written off are not evidence. They don't come in. You only get to put in the adjusted number. So once the big number couldn't come in front of the jury, then that's when we immediately saw plaintiff's bar say, okay, fine, tell your clients not to use insurance and we get the big number. So then what happens is then these doctors, and so the medical industry is, is very unique. Um, I'll put that nicely, but what other profession can you make charges that you know are fictitious and you're not really going to get paid those amounts? And our Supreme Court in Texas, case after case, has noted that medical providers don't get paid what they charge. They get paid what they get paid. 95% of all services are done through some form of health insurance. And, and so, um, so, so anyhow, that's been the latest challenge. And I was involved in, in one of the, um, in a, a a very important Supreme Court case, the ca uh, decision came out in 2018, where the Supreme Court said that we can get discovery of the reimbursement rates. So for example, there's a surgeon um, that, that always testifies $49,000 is his fee to perform a, a, a spine surgery, uh, you know, a fusion, for example. Well, he gets paid about $3,000 for that procedure. So without the reimbursement rates, you just have that doctor saying, this is my fee, these are my charges, I expect to get paid. And where we've been pushing is, let us see all the records that show what this guy really gets paid. And what I say is, maybe that's not the standard. Maybe 3,000 isn't the number, but if this guy's getting paid nine times out of 10, $3,000 for this procedure, but only for lawsuits, you know, does he come in here and, and you know, it's relevant. And so the Supreme Court 
has um, has now allowed that, has said that is relevant, it's discoverable, and that's been a really good tool for us for fighting these inflated medical bills. Still a challenge, but I mean, we've got we've got a lot of cases. We got one case, 1.5 million in medical bills. And you, you know, it's like I say, you could get a heart transplant for a fraction of these costs. I mean, it, it's it's unreal what they're saying. And generally we find that it's inflated by a factor of about 10 times. Right, right. Um, and the other thing I think I've seen to sort of gin up those those medical expenses are fairly lightweight slash bogus life care plans. I, I assume that you have seen those as well. Yes, and I'll tell you the number one attack on those. So life care plan is where basically they, they hire someone to come in and say, okay, this plaintiff over the course of his remaining life is gonna need all this stuff. I mean, they'll say they're gonna need an MRI every year. They're gonna need three injections a year for the next 20 years, which was, some of these things are insane what they're talking about. Um, but, and, and one of the principal attacks we have on it is simply to say, no doctor has recommended <laughs> um, this stuff. You know, and 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 these life care planners, they're not treating physicians. Their reports all say we are not treating physicians. That means they're not actually rendering any uh, recommendations or treatment plans or saying even that this stuff is necessary. Um, so so we will typically attack those by showing that no doctor said they need that. Great. And, and then, of course, they're also using the inflated numbers as on top of that. So we attack that component as well. Of, of course they are. Yeah. <laughs> of course right. they are. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about some litigation strategies for avoiding those surprise verdicts. Um, specifically trucking companies. Um, what can they do to avoid these not so crazy verdicts? So the, the number one thing is when it's your fault, it's okay to say it's your fault. My Let me tell you my favorite thing to tell a jury, and that is you don't have to determine who's at fault in this case because my client has accepted responsibility and we want to pay what's fair and we need your help in determining what's fair. Now, instead of them attacking you and picking through a bunch of things in your, in your file that didn't even cause the accident, trying to make you look bad every which way, you're now the reasonable person that's trying to resolve this thing. And it's, it, it eliminates the reptile basically. And um, so, you know, it, it sounds, I always, I always feel like I've got to say this with an asterisk because it sounds defeatist to say accept responsibility. But the fact is, I mean, there, you know, a, a certain uh, percentage of time, it is our fault. And I see time and time again, defense firms are not accepting responsibility. If you rear-ended the other person, what are you waiting for? Are you praying on a miracle at a trial that somebody might somehow think, oh, that poor trucking company, they didn't mean to run into this person. It, it doesn't work that way, you know? So I, that's the first thing when we get into a file. Everyone at our firm knows it. When we get a file, the first thing I wanna know is, is it our fault? And let me tell you, if it's not our fault, we need to button that case up. I want the reconstructionist to confirm that everything is consistent with what our driver is saying. And I want that visual presentation put together. If the, if the officer found it wasn't our fault and his opinion comes in, depose him right away. You have to have a rock solid case there on liability if you're going to do it, because I will tell you, challenging liability is one of the most dangerous things a defendant can do in this climate. And and like I said, I'm never going to say if it's not our fault that we're going to say it's our fault. I mean, we 100 percent are all about the truth. But just because a driver tells you a story as far as why it's not his fault, you need to vet that story because 
drivers overly say it's not their fault, you know, um, more often than, than, than is the case. And I'm not, you know, I, I, and I think part of it is they get nervous, they get concerned that they're going to lose their license or it's going to go on their record or, or whatever it might be. And uh, it, sometimes it almost seems like a bit of a cultural thing. Um, and so we really want to talk to them and make sure they understand that it's okay. You know, it's, it's okay if, if, and if that's what the facts um, bear out it's going to be a much easier time if you're going with the truth instead of against the grain. So that's a simple thing um, that, that people, you know, that, that the companies need to, to really understand. Uh, I mean, the obvious of course is having a good safety program, your verify, you know, verification of your driver and really looking at that application um, and, and the prior employment history, looking for red flags, you don't want an accident. You don't want a lawsuit and it's no driver's worth it. Right. I mean, your premium's going up, somebody getting hurt, that kind of thing. So from an operational standpoint, yes, vetting your drivers, um, uh, is, is the number one thing there. Um, and then on, on a different level, you know, from what we can do in the courtroom is anchoring damages. And I, I can, I can go into that a little bit more, explain to you from a defense perspective let, as well. Let me, um, bring you back to what, what the trucking companies can do. Um, I think one of the things that you and I talked sure. about beforehand was video cameras. Oh, of course. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it really takes the sting out of an accident sometimes if there is a video camera that, that shows what happened. You don't have the, the, the driver who says, you know, I really don't think it was my fault. Well, there's a video. He doesn't, he doesn't yeah, have I've, to deal with that. Yeah, in my, my view, uh, a video camera is the best lawyer you can hire. I mean, they can they can open and shut a case really quick if you got it on video. And it's uh, something I highly recommend. It is so worth it. You That video over the course of a couple, two, three years, you're going to eliminate some claims right there. Won't even be a question from the get-go. And on the flip side, as, as you mentioned, if if it's clear that it's your fault, you're done and, and you are accepting responsibility and you're moving on to the, the main issue. And let me just tell you, as far as accepting responsibility, what happens is you take the spotlight off of your, your driver and your company and you put it on the plaintiff. If we're trying a case and, and it's, it's our fault, well, we're trying the case because, yeah, it was our fault, but there's barely a dent in the other vehicle and this person's exaggerating the claims and we can prove they weren't really hurt. And the jury is much more receptive when we've shown our you know reasonableness and credibility by accepting the the obvious that it was our fault and and now they're willing to listen to the real issues in this dispute in the case you know from the insurer's perspective the video camera allows us to make better judgments as well we can look at it and say okay clearly this is our fault let's get this thing resolved as quickly and as cheaply as we possibly can and that's a better outcome for the, the trucking company um so you know from our perspective the video cameras are golden as well um i i think i would also stress for the trucking companies cooperation with the attorney um sometimes we have trucking companies or drivers who just they just don't want to deal with it um, but they've been sued and they have to deal with it and so i would hope um that that we would hire great attorneys and and that they would cooperate with those attorneys. Um, what about attention to routes, Juan? I mean, do you do you see, do you have clients who avoid certain areas? 
I'll be honest with you. I, I, I don't, I, offhand, I can't think of, of that situation where they've avoided certain areas. I, I know that I've talked to some people at conferences who have said that they have geofenced like Upshur County, Texas right now. Um, yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's happening. Upshur County, Texas is a really bad venue right now. And they've just said, you know what, we're not going to run our trucks through it. We don't have to. It's not big. It's not like it's like Dallas or Houston or something where we have to go through it. But if we can go around it, we'll go around it. Um, I'll tell you, the other thing I have seen is an increasing number of claims where the driver has had an accident or a breakdown. And then there's this secondary collision. You know, a few cars go yeah. past the accident scene and then you have somebody who just comes up and kablam, there's a huge accident. Um, the claimant in the secondary collision alleges that the driver didn't either activate hazard lights or put out safety triangles or flares. And that is something that's entirely preventable. So I would hope that any trucking companies listening, please train your drivers on, on getting those things done. That's right. We actually, we do see quite a few cases where a vehicle is parked, uh, whether it's secondary to an accident or they're having some maintenance issue with their truck and they pull over and someone's on their phone or, or you know, distracted in some way and they drive right into the, the truck. And those are some of the worst accidents, of course. I mean, they're, they're driving into uh, a fixed object and they're going highway speeds. So um, those are some really tough cases and they will file suit and they will look for anything on, on those, um, uh, you know, with the triangles not being placed out, that kind of thing. So as far as your training program, I would definitely, um, that's something I would definitely go over with, with the drivers. And you mentioned cooperating with the attorney. So another thing that, that is important is early intervention. You know, for example, I talk about the liability determination. For me, a company should know, you, you can know pretty early on, pretty quickly if it's, if it's your fault or not. And especially if you think it's going to be litigated, maybe getting a reconstructionist involved, like I said, to, to vet the story. But I, I think that those determinations need to be made early. All too often, I see people letting it ride as if we can just stipulate default later down the road, but it gets really expensive along the way. And a savvy plaintiff attorney will make the defendant pay for that and saying, why are you admitting default on the eve of trial or the first time at trial when you knew this all along from the get-go? So we need to have a consistent position from the beginning. Right. It takes your advantage away at trial. Um, so what can insurance carriers and attorneys do to fight these surprise verdicts? Well, we've talked about, you know, accepting responsibility. And, and you, I think you've mentioned um, Tyson Mendez um, and, and uh, Robert Tyson's written a book about accept, and he mentions that in one of his chapters, it's important to always accept responsibility for something, even if not for causing the accident, accepting responsibility for what you have to do as a trucking company and showing that you've complied um, with that. So, so that's the first thing. I mean, you want to show yourself to be a good corporate citizen. That's, that's the antidote to, to reptile theory. And one of those being what we've touched on, which is if it's your fault, accept responsibility. And that, that really takes the anger and emotional element either out or it, it reduces it substantially. And so that's one thing. Another is we've talked about anchoring. So the defense needs to anchor their number. The defense always needs to have a number. Even I tried one case where we didn't believe we hurt the guy. We didn't believe he needed the future surgery, 
but we still tell, I still will tell the jury, look, I don't believe that he, you know, we don't believe he needs that surgery, but if you see otherwise, then this is what that number looks like, right? No matter what it is, even if you, even if you think it's not your fault, you still have to give the jury a number if they think otherwise, because if not, they're just going to have the plaintiff attorney's number. So, so you always have to give a number. So when you're giving the number, anchor the number, show what the money can do. And, and so what plaintiff attorneys are doing is they're basically saying, oh, this accident was really, really bad. And the defendant is a really bad actor and millions of dollars is a lot of money. So those things match up. I mean, it's just, there's, but as mentioned earlier, the, the CEO salary and the, the baseball player salary, that has nothing to do with this. The dollar a day is totally arbitrary. But let's talk about what $100,000 can do for this family. You know, I saw, so I saw an example where um, it was a wrongful death case and the, um, it, it left behind a, a widow and a small child. The, the child was young enough that she never actually knew her, her dad. So you have a wrongful death case, two, two claimants there essentially. And the defense put up a damages model and they provided amount and they said, we're going to pay for this child to be able to go to the most prestigious university. We want the family to be comfortable and not have the stress of having a house note. So we're gonna pay off their mortgage. We're gonna pay for them to have weekly um, therapy sessions for the next whatever period of time it was. And um, to help, you know, um, comfort them, we're going to pay for them to take, a, you know, vacations. And, and, and that was what the model looked like. And if you really put that together, I think you can do that for somewhere between one to one point five million dollars, you know, right. and you're talking about a widow and a child. And and as a jury that that's grounded, that's anchoring. Right. You're, you're putting a dollar figure to. Um, uh, or, or you're putting a story, really, of what the money can do. You're telling a story of what the money can do. And a lot of this, it's storytelling is the other thing. Um, the plaintiff's bar is, um, I mean, they, they study psychology, persuasion, and influence. And the best way to do that is with visual storytelling. And a lot of them have tapped into it and figured it out. I don't see the defense bar anywhere near where the plaintiff's bar is. And, and it's a very reactive um thing and and you've really got to hit them and the big thing again is when they throw these arbitrary numbers out there expose the arbitrary nature of it and ground it with now you know we talked about a death case but think a hundred thousand dollars for the plaintiff who's you know got some injuries experiencing some pain what can a hundred thousand dollars do in their life and the way you find that out is through depositions uh you know the the claimant uh, we've got one right now i'm like let's go depose the wife let's, what what are they doing you know what do they enjoy doing what did they enjoy doing before? What is it they can't do now? And then let's quantify how we can um, compensate for that in a very tangible way, as opposed to them saying, you know, um, th these these high numbers. Right. That, no and reference. that is that is my rant right now is that the, the, the plaintiff's attorneys, you know, once upon a time, um, there was there was fear or shame in overreaching. And now there is no fear and no shame in overreaching because they have learned that if they they pose a super high insane number, a lot of times they get it. Um, and so we as the as the defense bar have to come up with ways to make money real and not, 
you know, fantasy damages. Um, let's talk about how yeah, this, this may come into the category of wish casting, but how do we change the landscape? How do we even the playing field? Um, what the, can the courts or states do to regulate the legal industry to make a difference? We've touched on quite a few of, of those things today. You know, we've, we've touched on um, tort reform where it's needed um, to, to rein in. So, I mean, more needs to be done on the medical bills. And, and we've seen it. I mean, we've seen, I think it's a bipartisan issue nationally. And the medical bills tend to be the number one anchor, you know, day in and day out on cases. Certainly you have cases where you have fatalities, you have cases where plaintiff attorneys have low medical bills, but they think they can show a lot of damage, so they won't submit the medical bill because otherwise it'll it'll anchor them. If they have 30,000 medical bills, but they think they can they can make out a case that this person was injured worse than that. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so we need to, on the medical bills, um, more needs to be done where doctors can't just make these numbers up and act like they're real. Because they know not only are those charges not real, but they're going to go back and, and accept the lower amount at the end of the day. And we're not allowed to see any of that. And to me, this is just the, this is the truth. And we need to expose the truth. And that's why that's an issue we fought. Because objectively speaking, what they're saying is false. And, and so, so I would say continuing more more being done to challenge these medical bills that are inflated, arbitrary, and not, you know, not genuine. Um, we, we've talked about the gross negligence. Texas is actually, we wanted to be a model with what we were doing here for the rest of the country. And, and I think a lot of ways we have, I think bifurcating the gross negligence claim is, is a really good thing. And, and we, we now have that in Texas. So I would recommend that um, for other states as well. And then this deal here of anchoring is is the big. Um, uh, I, I think that that's really part of the state of the art here is getting better at, at, at exposing the arbitrary nature of, of their, you know, their asks that are um, not tethered by any reality, you know, and, and exposing what what money can actually do. And, um, you know, there's I, a certain go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think I would add better rules on discoverability of third-party litigation funding. Um, we see we see now outside investment companies investing in certain cases, um, providing funding for these cases. And in most jurisdictions, the defendants are completely in the dark as to who they're really negotiating with to try to resolve a case. Right. And what they do is they, they increase the cost because what those funding companies are doing, they're paying the doctors. So the doctors are getting paid the same, but now you got another layer on top of that where they're seeking to profit. And these are secret deals, but I'll tell you, I've seen one before where there's kickback provisions that basically say, if we collect more than a certain percentage of your bill, then that extra goes back into the pool uh, for these people uh, to divvy up. There's some really shady stuff going on that does need to be regulated more. And, and I mean, you have people investing in lawsuits. So that means their financial interest is in, in growing the amount of money is being paid out. That's contrary to our justice system. So I, I agree. agree. We tried that in Texas as well. And 
I don't have the details on exactly why, but it didn't pass because there were legislators that were somehow involved with some sort of financing companies that maybe were not necessarily for plaintiff lawsuits, but something that may fall under the same definition. So we, we fell into that. It's, um, but I agree for sure we need more to be done there. As far as I know, there are only two states that require automatic disclosure of those third, third party funding um, agreements, and those are Wisconsin and West Virginia. I think New Jersey has a local rule, local federal court rule that requires automatic disclosure, but we've still got a long way to go on that. Um, the other thing that I know that, that we're interested in are, are limiting these non-economic damages, um, these pain and suffering damages. And I know that there is a case currently in the Texas Supreme Court, New Prime versus Gregory, um, where it has been proposed that the Texas Supreme Court do just that. Um, the oral arguments are on November 30th, so we're sort of crossing our fingers and, um, and watching what happens with the Texas Supreme Court on that. Um, anything else to add on that topic? No, I think, I think it's what, we, what we've touched on today. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I hope that our audience has enjoyed my conversation with you, Juan. Um, and I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We learned some helpful information about these crazy verdicts and the trucking litigation landscape. Thanks for listening, folks, and we will see you next time on Holland Notes. Thanks, Jen. Want to make sure you never miss a Holland Notes episode? Head to the link in the show notes to sign up for email notifications.